0: a Baha'i perspective. I recorded an interview with Mary Fish on May 9, 2016. Mary is an economist. Her career includes teaching for over 35 years at numerous universities. She worked at the World Bank in the Gambia. She shares her experiences during the interview as well as sharing the Baha'i perspective on economics. I started the interview by asking Mary where she grew up. And what was it like growing up there?
1: I grew up in Albert Lee, Minnesota. Yeah, Vold, I betcha, I then think I do. <laughs> uh, my father was Dutch and my mother was Norwegian. And so we learned English. <laughs> uh, I lived in a lovely, lovely town. I lived about five houses from Fountain Lake, which is quite a large lake. And in the summer, we swam and boated. And in the winter, oh, we skied and we skated. I used to skate across the lake. And as I skated across the lake, I could feel the wind in my face. And it was like I was flying. Such a nice time in my life.
0: So uh, what was religious life like growing up?
1: My wonderful life. I belonged with my mother and my father and my brother and sister to the Presbyterian Church. (laughs) Still is there, it's a gorgeous church. It's a small church. And it's surrounded by Baptists and Lutherans and everything else. But I remember that one of the members of the church had a son who had specialized in organ music. And when he came to town to visit his mother, I could always tell who was playing this gigantic pipe organ. It would start out usually when he wasn't there, Onward, Christian soldiers. And then it would shift when he was there. And I knew he was there because then it would go, Onward, Christian soldiers. (laughs) And I loved it when he played the large organ that had been given by a a member of the church. This wonderful life. But my brother was Killed in World War II I had No religious Understanding of what was happening Particularly because my Father had died when I was 11 and my brother Died when I was 14 And soon after My uncle was killed in the war Really I think the Presbyterians Wanted to give it their best shot But it wasn't A good shot for a young girl. And so the shade of these deaths seemed to haunt me really until I became interested in the Baha'i faith because I found that they had a very clear solution for the souls and hearts of those who die. So... I was sent to the University of Minnesota, and there were 50,000 students there. It was after the war. It was somewhat after the war. I loved the not knowing anybody. I loved the idea that I was free and could do what I wanted to do.
0: How old were you when you ran into the Baha'i faith?
1: I ran into the Baha'i faith when I was 24 in San Francisco. My undergraduate degree was in business, and so I thought when I graduated, I'd like to go into merchandising and selling in Des Moines, Iowa at Yonkers Department Store. And I went down there, and I tried to sell ladies' underwear on second floor, But I found that I was not a success at ladies. But I tell you this because the story goes on. So I felt that I would like another job. And so I read in the paper that the psychiatrist who was director of the five mental institutions, which include one which was criminally insane, he needed a statistician. And I had a statistic book so I could be a statistician, although I had plunged it once at the University of Minnesota, but I didn't tell him because he didn't ask. Well, when Joanne came down and we spent the year, I've got to tell you about Joanne. I was lonely in Des Moines. And so I asked my friend Joanne from the University of Minnesota if she would take her medical technology degree and come to Des Moines for one year. And then I promised her I would go any place in the world that she would like to go. Well, actually I said the United States. But we weren't thinking big time then. We were thinking about the United States. And the year was up and she said San Francisco. And I said, fine. And I'm 24 now, and she's 24. And we put all our belongings in the back of her 48 or 49 Chevrolet, and we drove from Des Moines, Iowa, to San Francisco. And, of course, Joanne got a job right away. It took me a little more time, but this is where the Baha'is come in. I got a job with the mental health department of the state of California. They needed a statistician and I had a book. <laughs> so I was working there for about a month and Emmy, one of my colleagues, and I I remember this so vividly. It sparkles in my heart. We would often go to Macy's Department Store in downtown San Francisco, which was across from the office where we worked. And as we were going down the escalator, I said, Emmy, our boss, Virginia, who was a Knight of Baha'u'llah, which is the, one of the highest...
0: Mary, isn't it a Baha'i that opened up a new And that's the area for the Baha'is that no Baha'is existed before.
1: That's exactly right. She went to Yap. And as it turned out, I asked Emmy what made her so special. She hadn't gone yet to Yap. I said, what makes Virginia so very, very special? She's just been my boss for a year. I mean, for a month, and she said, I think it's her religion. And I said, what is her religion? Emmy said, oh, she believes that all the prophets or manifestations of God came in an order to help the development of humankind. And this I'm a little ashamed of, but a little not ashamed of, too. I heard what Emmy said then i heard her say if i were interested in religion this is the one i would join and at that point i knew that i was going to, that i was a bahai because i believed what emmy who wasn't religious at all believed so i went back to the office and said virginia would you tell me about the bahai faith and she said yes i'll visit with you about it And that's all she said for two weeks. And then she invited me to have breakfast with her on Sunday. And I remember what we ate. We had asparagus wrapped in bacon. I remember it was delicious. And then I began to become a part of the Baha'i group, so to speak.
0: After you heard about the Baha'i faith from your boss, Elizabeth, how long was it before you actually just became a Baha'i?
1: Two years. Okay. Two years, and I was in Japan when I became a Baha'i, and I'd like to tell you about this. I met a fellow who was in the Korean War, and he asked me to come and visit him in Japan. And I said, of course, I'll come and visit you in Japan, and then we'll get married. And we did.
0: Well, how did you know this man? I mean, how did you Oh, I met
1: him in San Francisco. I met him because he was stationed. He had come back from Alaska. He was in an engineer group of military soldiers.
0: And you had met him through the Baha'i faith?
1: No, I didn't. I met him through Joanne, and I was the only woman short enough for him because he was only about five feet, nine, ten. I went to Japan, and I still had not declared that I was a Baha'i. Donald and I were married at the U.S. Embassy, and we had a small house, a bottom of a house, and it was heated by a Big stove, which wasn't very hot at all, and it gets very cold in in Tokyo. And they had sent me the name of a Baha'i in Tokyo who worked for the embassy. And I thought, I can go to the movie and be warm in the winter time. I can go visit Lisa Webster, who lives in the embassy apartments, and that will be nice and warm. And she's a Baha'i. So I chose Lisa, and she told me all about the Baha'i faith. Again, this is the time I decided, as Donald and I were going to Kyoto on the fast train, I said to myself, Mary, it's time to stand up and be counted. And I became a Baha'i.
0: So how long were you
1: in Japan? For a couple of years. And then we came back. Actually, we went to Midland. My husband was a petroleum geologist. It was funny. In Midland.
0: What state were you in?
1: Texas. It was truly the heart of the oil industry. Now it's moved to Houston, but it was Midland, Texas. And they still quote the oil price from per barrel from Midland, Texas. I was not particularly happy in Midland because I couldn't find a job as a statistician and I still had my book. Uh, <laughs> but Donald and I decided that we would like to go to graduate school and we went to Norman, Oklahoma. And the reason why N- Norman, Oklahoma was because it, it was At this time, that time, the finest petroleum teaching school in the country. So we moved into this semi barracks in Norman, Oklahoma, and there were a couple knocks on the door. And Donald went to the door and he said, Oh, Mary? What, Donald? The Baha'is are here. And there were two Iranian young men who were going to the University of Oklahoma. And (laughs) Donald's comment was, it's the strongest union I've ever seen. The union decided to establish a college club at Norman, Oklahoma. And we found out, this was really funny to me, there were two things the club could not do. The club could not sing, and the club could not pray. And we said, okay, I suspect they weren't thinking of the Baha'is because they had never had a Baha'i club.
0: So who made those rules? The University of Oklahoma. Now, why wouldn't they want a club that sings or prays?
1: Well, at that time, was a culture where they sang very loudly and uh, did strange things and prayed very loudly. Praise God. They didn't want to discourage us, but they didn't want to have any problems with other faiths either.
0: I see. So because the Baha'i faith was so different, they didn't want a problem with the christian clubs
1: no praying or singing i think was meant for the christian clubs more than for us
0: oh so they couldn't do the, they couldn't pray or sing either
1: oh no 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 it wasn't an individual thing i always thought it was more for the christians than for the bahais because they didn't know about the bahai faith
0: so what did you study when you were there economics i always was wondering mary why did you Choose economics because you had done some statistical work before you went to graduate school?
1: Well, I had gotten my master's at West Texas State, which is now a branch of the University of Texas in Minnesota. The business courses I took, I found that theoretical economics, where you dream dreams and built models, fascinated me. And I was not wonderful in everything, but I was very good in micro and macro economics, because you dream dreams and you make models and you try to test them. It's a theoretical science, but you can test it quite a bit
0: You had worked doing... I was a statistician. A statistician for for various companies. And I guess you had a sense of what the field of economics was before you decided to enter it. And it sounds like you knew that it was a theoretical science and this was a, a branch of knowledge that drew you. Is that
1: accurate? Well, actually, at the University of Minnesota, when I took... My first courses in economics, I was better at that. Well, I was superior to my regular grades in economics. I had a knack for it.
0: So you got your master's?
1: Well, I got my master's from Texas Tech by driving back and forth when we were in Midland And I got my Ph.D. from the University of Oklahoma.
0: After you got your Ph.D., what did you do?
1: I taught at West Texas after I got my Ph.D. And I thought, this was the year of integration in the country. And I said, I'd like to go to New York with the American Economic Association interviewing and I interviewed with the director of the economics and finance department at the University of Alabama. As I was talking to him, the job sounds wonderful to me. But I told him that I could not probably come to Alabama. And I told him I was a Baha'i. And I uh, had very strong ideas about integration that it must come about and I would love to be part of the integration but I don't know if the college would be ready for me or I would be ready for it and he smiled and smiled and he said Mary I marched at Selma (laughs) and I said Okay, I'll take the job, because if he could march at Selma, then I could do things that I thought were important. I went to the University of Alabama, which is now known for its Crimson Tide, Roll Tide, and I was there for a, very, a long time. Donald and I made an agreement That I would choose for three years, and then he would choose for three years. And he chose after three years, and he said we could stay there. (laughs) And so we did for 30 years.
0: So tell me about your experience at Alabama with the whole civil rights thing going on.
1: It was very interesting. And, of course, now the, the University of Alabama has uh, almost 20% black, but that's what the state has, 20% black. So we were very pleased with this. It was very difficult. No, the planning was difficult because when they brought in the first integrated student, the planning had been tremendous. Because you had to have a person, a faculty person, who could control the class. You had to be outside of range from a shotgun. You had to make sure that the student could go through his class regulations, one class to another class, without getting pot shots from. The roof of the building, and it was handled beautifully. Two years ago, in Alabama, they had the sororities and fraternities make their choices in this, in the fall, as usual. The president of the university said, "You didn't integrate, did you?" And they said, "No," and they said, "Do it again,"
0: hmm.
1: meaning. Do it again.
0: A few years after you got there, you mean?
1: No, just a few just years. Just recently. Ago. Yes, I wasn't there. So,
0: just she, recently, they were told yes. to integrate their sororities. They were
1: integrated, but not the fraternities and sorority, and that was a few years ago. Amazing. I was very proud of her, of the president. Right. Do so, it again.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. Now, what was the impact of the racial? divide on the Baha'i community while you were there, during that era?
1: We went to an area that was uh, extremely isolated from the city itself. They had no religious prejudice, and they had very little prejudice against white folks. When I would have Baha'is over to visit, it was hard for the black Baha'is, to move in my area, Meg Carney would come and spend a couple of days with me.
0: Who's Meg Carney?
1: She was on the National Spiritual Assembly. She a, was a black Baha'i, okay, and she was a counselor.
0: All right, so she was uh, a fairly high-ranking African-American yes. Baha'i yes. Uh, who came to visit. She,
1: she came from the Nashville area. She said that it was very difficult for her to walk in the street or on the sidewalk because she said, I've not done it. It's not been comfortable for me in the past. Because I had three children, I had a maid. Well, it was more of a person to take care of the house. She was white. And she served Mag Carney, And Meg said, I've never been served by a white person before. And I said, well, you better get used to it. And it was fine. We had a little trouble with potential threats when the Baha'is would come to visit. But my husband would just sit in the front yard, and that would be that.
0: He was a great defender of the Baha'i faith then.
1: He was a great defender, but he never was a Baha'i.
0: I was reading your bio, and it says that you had received a Reese Pfeiffer Fellowship. I had not heard of that before. Can you
1: tell me what that is? Yes. It's more of an Alabama-Southern fellowship. Actually, the woman who was the CEO for Reese Pfeiffer, which is a large family-owned company, which makes screen windows for places all over the world. She had been in my economics class, and so when she saw that I was still teaching, she gave me a Rich Pfeiffer Fellowship, thousands of dollars, which I enjoyed very much.
0: Your bio also said that you had co-authored a book? Yes. What what book was that?
1: It was Crime, Cons, and Contraband. It was a story of... uh, The organizations that are set up within the prison walls, in women's prisons and in uh, men's prisons, it is interesting in that the book lays out with some clarity the organizations that men make and women make. They're different. When women make organizations, they usually step out of them when they are released from prison. Men, it's a little bit different. They have a a family which is mostly over brutality in getting along. I wrote the women's section.
0: I also see that you work for the World Bank and the gambia
1: the gambia is one probably the smallest nation in the world or pretty near it the gambia is a country which got money from the world bank to develop a gold coast tourism area the gambia decided that they would court tourism and they did Internationally, but the international people who came to spend a couple weeks in the Gambia in the winter at the Atlantic Ocean, they didn't know how much of the what the tourists were spending actually came down to the Gambian government and the people of the Gambia. I'm sorry to say. They hired me to find out, and we pretty much found out that they did not get much of the money. This large tourism start was uh, pretty much to the benefit of the Europeans who had built the hotels for the Scandinavians to stay. And they even imported their food because it was more dependable than the uh, local produce.
0: Development philosophies have matured so much since those days.
1: Yes. And this was being run by the Gambian government.
0: So how many years did you spend in Africa altogether?
1: Oh, about three. I think one of the nicest things that helped me was... When I was teaching in the university, a young man, he came to me and he said, it's warm and you have sort of a little cotton suit, but don't we deserve your better clothes? And I thought, oh my, oh my, I'm not giving them the right kind of respect. And so I started wearing my good clothes to teach in, but it was quite hot.
0: How was Monrovia different from the Gambia from your perspective?
1: Monrovia was much more sophisticated. They had a university. They had churches. They had a downtown that was vital. They had tourists. I remember I did a study with a a fellow who had graduated from a university in uh, Kenya. What was the price the tourist paid for a statue, a wooden statue carved, versus what a local paid? Of course, the tourist paid a much higher price. But it was an interesting study of how quickly tourists are noticed in the a place that is quite as sophisticated as Liberia was. A friend went back to Liberia a couple months ago to help in teaching the nurses who delivered the babies and she said it was in quite good shape.
0: Did you visit other countries? Yes.
1: I went to India. The money from the fellowship the fellowship you already asked me about oh, they let me work in the most magnificent temple i've ever seen it was the bahai temple you can look from one side to the other and there are steps that lead into the temple of course it has ponds all around it and you walk up at the marble steps with your shoes off I just want to tell you funny about the temple when I was working there the Baha'i temple thousands of people go through this magnificent structure I heard one Indian lady as she was going up the steps she said to her friend oh it's magic magic It's just magic, this Baha'i Temple, because when you step on that big lawn, you hear a whistle. The whistle came from the military fellow who had become a Baha'i, and he wanted the grass to grow beautifully. And so when the people took off their shoes and walked in their bare feet... Well, before they took off their shoes and stepped on the grass, he would blow the whistle so they wouldn't walk on the grass. That <laughs> was a lovely Baha'i military man.
0: Mm, that's a funny story. You know, um, they call that the, the Lotus Temple because the shape of the uh, house of worship is in the shape of a, a, a lotus flower. Yeah, a lotus flower. And yes. it's located in Delhi.
1: Yes, it's in New Delhi. And. Uh, I took a cart pulled when I went to work in the Lotus Temple. I took off my shoes, and they lent me appropriate clothing so I would look like a little lotus flower.
0: So what other countries did you go to?
1: On my last Fulbright, I went to Taiwan and Hong Kong. They wanted me to do a research program Hong Kong is a big, big tourist place. When the Chinese government decided to take control of Hong Kong, they were afraid that they would kill the vast amount of tourism, which becomes a fantastic source of income for the Hong Kong people and for the people who live in Hong Kong. I have one funny story to tell you about the Baha'is, another funny story to tell you about the Baha'is in India. I was up closer to the north of India. My host, who was a geologist Took me to the Baha'i meeting and because he knew about the Baha'i people and he wanted to uh, see where I was going and so on and so forth. My host wanted to leave a little early. He lived on the other side of of the town in which he northern India. I asked my host if there was anybody who would be going that way. One gentleman said, Oh sure. I'll give you a ride I'm going that way and I said fine and my host went home and he, before he left he gave the address to the driver it was about 10, and the driver was getting ready to go home and we stepped outside and India is a mass of people I said where is your car? And he said, I don't have a car. I have a motorcycle.
2: <laughs> and
1: it wasn't a Harley either. We got on his motorcycle and we started to go through the downtown. I said, don't you think it would be a good idea to turn your headlight on? Oh, jeez! And he said, yes. And he didn't turn it on. And I, then I tried to think of ways I could say it again without being a nagger and I said maybe you could see more easily as you wove around this street full of trucks and cars statement simply was it doesn't work (laughs) I just held on tighter yeah
0: I can imagine that was scary
1: well I just held on tighter as I said So, Mary, what are you doing these days? Well, I'm one of the the three teachers on the Wilmette Institute classes on economics and the Baha'i faith. And my research that I'm beginning to find very, very interesting is what our scientists not what Baha'is... Baha'is know pretty much the gift that Baha'u'llah has given them for a new chance at oneness of mankind. as our economics, social and well, I guess our education systems fail. People all over the world, editors, newspaper people, book writers are talking about the kind of world the future will be and what will happen as we uh, morph into a senior level, level of living. For example, a British writer came out and talked about how he thought there would be small Groups of people who would make decisions in companies. Piccadi, the Frenchman who came out with about two years ago with capital, his fantastic book, uh, says that if we continue the way we are going, that we will never redistribute income. As we all know, has to happen, but there are only things like war, and disease, and uh, uprisings that will cause this type. In other words, Piccadilly says we have to have catastrophe, or we can't make changes in the economy. He may or may not be true, but Baha'is are very hopeful that we can take those steps that are now signaling us to take with us an understanding of the race called mankind.
0: One of the fundamental principles of the Baha'i faith is this concept of a spiritual solution to the economic problem. And I was wondering if you could give your Perspective of what that Baha'i teaching means to you?
1: What it means to me is very, very comforting. It means to me that humankind will begin to move away from consumerism, from wealth as being the gods of our centuries rather we'll think the golden rule not as it's gone through all religions in history but now it will allow human beings to understand that they are changing that happiness that wellness contentment Comes from service and the love of our brother.
0: Yeah, that's a very important teaching of the Baha'i Faith. Baha'u'llah stated that work in the spirit of service is the same thing as worship.
1: It is. And we are not throwing out competition, not at all. We're bending it. So, people simply allow the framework of merchandising in a way that services human beings. Our new system will not be communistic, nor will it be capitalistic. We've never really been capitalistic anyway. We just pretended it will be a where all human beings have an adequate level of living, there will be a differences in salaries because there's differences in in talents and developments where everybody works unless they can't, and where we nurture the spiritual development
0: it brings to mind another fundamental Baha'i principle, which is the abolishment of the extremes of wealth and poverty.
1: Yes. The extreme of wealth is a burden to the person who is extremely wealthy. And certainly, we know that the extremes of poverty are horrid, just horrid. May I tell you something? Yes, please. I've been about a half a week in Washington, D.C. And I went through all the monuments, and I started with Lincoln was my first, and then the World Wars, and then I went to the Korean War and the Vietnam War, and then the new memorial for Martin Luther King. And I thought... Of the Korean statues, and then it's it's a whole field of soldiers with metal clothes on, carrying a big gun, and with their faces out to defy the world. And then you get to Martin Luther King. Around the statue is a series of. Exactly the things that would delight the heart of a Baha'i, because on each of the walls circling the statue is a sentence by Martin Luther King, and they're all Baha'is in nature because they say every one must recognize the oneness of humankind, that's the theme. Even if you want to be in a small village, you must recognize the oneness of humankind. It is a beautiful place.
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing that, and thank you for sharing your life and the work you've done in the spirit of service to humanity. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Mary Fish, a Baha'i and an economist. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you join me next time on a Baha'i perspective.
2: Stop,
3: I can see her in my heart The whole world was falling apart She said, this is where I've got